Witness Docs from Stitcher. If you don't leave now, we'll die together. I can think of worse ways to go. Then you're obviously crazy, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Yo, I love Bond movies. And Daniel Craig is probably my favorite Bond of them all. He just gets it. And in second place, now this brings up a lot of controversy, but YOLO, Pierce Brosnan. Was it something I said? What can I say? I'm a kid from the 90s. He was my Bond. James Bond. But something I've noticed about James Bond movies is that no matter what era they're from, if you take out all of the action scenes, what's left? I can't resist waking you. Every time I do, you look at me as if you haven't seen me in years. It makes me feel reborn. A romance. A movie-length telenovela. If you'd just been born, wouldn't you be naked? You have me then. You can have me anywhere. At the end of the day, Bond is a ladies' man. A ladies' man with an action-packed life. And what about Ruby Rosa? Sure, everyone knows Ruby was a ladies' man, but if Bond was really based on him, then you gotta wonder, did Ruby also have an action-packed life? Today we're gonna get a glimpse of what Ruby's day-to-day life was actually like from someone who was very close to him. And we'll take a closer look at the similarities between Ruby and Bond, James Bond. I'm Rivas, Christopher Rivas, and this is Ruby Rosa, Episode 3. Just a gigolo? I met Porfirio Rubiros at a very young age. This is Taki Theodorkopoulos. This man is emblematic of the rich and famous people who used to party all across Europe back in the 1950s and 60s. I was around 20, and I was a young tennis player and polo player, and he, he didn't know how to play tennis, but he was a very accomplished polo player. And he took me under his wing, and uh, that's how our great friendship began. Yes, Taki not only knew Ruby, they were great friends. Taki is in his 80s now, but he remembers what it was like back in the day at his favorite club in Paris, a spot called Jimmy's. Ruby and him would spend their nights there. First of all, the great thing about Jimmy's was it stunk of smoke. This smoky den was owned by a famous nightclub singer named Regine. You'd walk in, dark, she'd open the door, you'd come in. On the left was Francois Sagan, always the writer. You'd go into the main room, the bar was on the right, good seats on the left. You'd sit there and would dance and sweat and dance and sweat till four in the morning, then you'd go home. My suit would stink and it had to be dry clean, but aired first because of the smoke. All kinds of famous folks would spend their evenings at Jimmy's, sweating and dancing alongside Taki and Ruby. Actresses like Bridget Bardot, wild mustached artists like Salvador Dali, elite families like the Rothschilds, and even royalty like the Duke of Windsor. Even the Duke of Windsor would go there and sit there and sweat his old man. <laughs> now, imagine this. Taki and Ruby out at a joint like Jimmy's. Everybody's drinking, smoking, dancing, drinking some more. The band takes a break, 
probably to grab a drink, or a smoke, or both. And Ruby gets this gleam in his eye, and he half-stumbles his way up onto the stage. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is dedicated to all the beautiful women. <laughs> he used to get up, take the microphone, and sing a very popular song at the time called I'm a Gigolo. Just a Gigolo. It was a hit song of the era by the big band leader Louis Prima. People know the part I'm playing. And of course, he made fun of himself because behind his back, of course, people would say, Ruby's a gigolo. A gigolo. A lover, an escort, a guy who's paid to keep a lady company. I mean, things you see in Hollywood make you cringe today, he did. And Taki knows firsthand because he was around for some of this cringy behavior. We used to have... Wonderful lunch with our wives, they'd go shopping and we'd go to Madame Claude's, which was a very high-class brothel. And she was saying what pigs we are. Well, we weren't pigs. It was what men did in those days. You know, in French society, men spent the afternoons chasing women and the women were shopping. So, um, Ruby and I laughed like hell. Can you imagine getting up on a weekday and casually hitting a brothel with your buddy by two in the afternoon? For Taki and Ruby, this was the high life, and they were all about it. Taki even writes a column to this day for an English newspaper called, you guessed it, The High Life. Sometimes he even writes about Ruby. He wanted to get up in the morning, take his time, box, then work the ponies, have lunch, get laid, and then go to a nightclub. That's what he wanted to do. If you say this today, they'll say, what a worthless character. Well, we were all worthless back then. And we liked that kind of life. We didn't have the American obsession that you have to go to work in the morning. I mean, that was for other people. It was as simple as that. Now, this is looked upon as the worst thing a man can do, and I sort of agree with it, but don't forget, I'm 85. But uh, in those days, it was perfectly normal, and it doesn't exist anymore. And I really do think they finished with Ruby. It is no coincidence that Ruby and Taki have both been called, and I quote, the last playboy. When the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolo. As life goes on without me. <laughs> like Taki says, that lifestyle just isn't acceptable anymore. Get her a drink. <laughs> but back then, it wasn't just accepted, it was sort of celebrated. And for Taki, there was no better mentor than Ruby. He copied Ruby's mannerisms, etiquette, and especially his style. He was incredibly glamorous, and he lived very well, dressed very well. Sammy Davis Jr., a pretty great fashionista and dresser in his own right, said that next to Ruby, he felt like he'd, quote, fallen off the garbage truck. I guess Sammy wasn't let in on Ruby's style secret. Taki was. The secret of good dressing was the suit should look very loose and be as tight as possible, which may sound contradictory, but it's a very good trick because it makes you look very good. The suit has to be very loose-looking, but tight as hell. Then you're well-dressed. Loose but tight. Sounds very zen. It worked. It worked so well that Ralph Lauren was supposedly inspired by Ruby to create the polo brand. We did try to confirm this with Ralph Lauren, but they never got back to us. Hey, yo, Ralph, call your boy back. Anyway, all this style and swagger, the confidence to get up and sing and be the center of attention in a room full of famous people, it was all a part of Ruby's charm. 
but he was the most charming man I ever met. He could charm anybody. You know, my father was a very big and very tough ship owner and industrialist. My father confronted him once in El Morocco and said to him, Mr. Rubiroso, you've ruined my son. He wants to be like you. Taki says his dad was serious, a hardworking shipping magnate who didn't want his son to turn into a party boy like Ruby. But confronting a charmer is easier said than done. Ruby got Taki's dad a couple of drinks, and the next thing you know... Ruby, in two seconds, had my father eating out of his hand. And he said, I've never met anybody who charmed like that. And he seduced everybody, men and women, meaning seduced, not sexually, of course. <clears throat> of course. And how much did our party boy Ruby love having a good time out at the clubs? Well, not even a war could stop him. Check this out. It's 1944, and Ruby is in the city that he loves the most, Paris. The city has just been liberated by the Americans, but there are still German soldiers roaming the streets, and there are still members of the French resistance hunting down these stray Nazis. Basically, it's total chaos. But that does not stop Ruby from being Ruby. And Ruby chose to go to a nightclub at the time. As he was driving off from a nightclub, a German said to him to stop, and he didn't stop. He was drunk. So the guy shot, and the bullet went through the boot or the car, the trunk, and got embedded in his kidneys. Later reports found it was not a German soldier, but a vigilante French civilian. In either case, Ruby was partying in a war zone and got capped. I felt as if I'd been stabbed with a red-hot fire poker. The pain in my back was becoming worse. I opened my collar as my face and palms began to sweat profusely, and I became nauseous. Ruby was with his second wife at the time, a French actress named Danielle Derrio. Ruby told her, I'm fine, I'm fine. But at the hospital, they removed three bullets from his body, and he suffered a life-threatening infection. But I love the idea that he went to a nightclub but there was fighting in the street. Classic Ruby. He loved to flirt with danger. He said, and I quote, It has always been one of my chief principles. I will risk everything to avoid being bored. Listen, y'all, I play basketball on Tuesdays as a hobby. But I guess Ruby loved hobbies that were a little more intense. He was a polo player, of course. You know, polo. Fast horses, wooden sticks, one of the most dangerous games in the world. Very good boxer. We used to box every day. He flew planes. He searched for underwater buried treasure. He was a racing driver. He raced Formula One uh, with Fangio, but not successful, but he was a very good sports car driver. Ruby raced cars for Ferrari. He raced Le Mans twice. That is a 24-hour race, and one of his races was actually recorded, along with a short interview. The whole thing got pressed to a record. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Sounds of Sebring, 1956. Uh, Mr. Rivarosa, could you tell us a little something about the car that you're driving today? Well, I'm driving a two-liter Ferrari, and I think the car is in good shape. We had a little accident uh, day before yesterday. The pilot hit the uh, gasoline drum, but we repaired it, and everything is all right. Good. Uh, this is the only Just as a quick aside, here, no, no, I got to tell you that in all my years of Ruby obsession... I'd never heard his voice until my producers unearthed this recording. What, what do you think of the course? Well, I think the course is uh, in very good condition. It's he doesn't sound anything like how I imagined he would sound. He sounds more European, I guess. Less Dominicano. What car were you driving last year? 
Uh, two liter Ferrari, too. On the same car? Not the same, but uh, the same category. Uh, who are you driving with today? With Gene Pauly, an American boy. I see, and you're splitting... The race starts. The cars take off. And after hours of zooming and zooming around in circles, Ruby finishes in 10th place. I guess you can't win them all. The bills for all these high-octane, dangerous pastimes, the Ferraris and airplanes and polo horses, they added up. Not to mention the travel. Oof. Ruby is jet-setting and globe-trotting at a time when it cost a lot of money to travel. A lot. But Ruby? Homeboy famously flew from Paris to Las Vegas for one night with a lover. Ruby wasn't an aristocrat with land that stretched back generations. Or the son of a shipping magnate like Taki. Or a prince. Or a world-famous actor like some of his other friends. So where did Ruby get the constant funding he needed in order to maintain his ultra-glamorous lifestyle? There were three big sources of money for Ruby throughout his life. The first, and maybe the most consistent, was the money he got as a diplomat for the DR. His official salary of $600 a month is about 7 k in today's money. Not too shabby. But unofficially, Ruby had his hands in the very, very deep pockets of General Trujillo. If you knew you could spend everything in your bank account today because somebody's going to replenish it tomorrow, why wouldn't you? This is Marty Wall, and he ain't wrong. Why wouldn't I? Plus, Ruby had a lot of time to spend the money. His day job didn't actually require much from him. I don't think he was negotiating trade deals. I don't think he was uh, doing anything that was a stately function. You know, he just played. He didn't seem to have any function other than to be a, a mouthpiece for the president of the country. Or like Trujillo himself put it, He is good at his job because women like him and he is a wonderful liar. But in order to get a steady paycheck from the Dominican Republic, Ruby had to stay on Trujillo's good side. And as you can imagine, with a monster dictator like that, that was not always easy. Ruby was fired by Trujillo on multiple occasions, sometimes just for getting bad press in the tabloids. Oh yeah, there was also that time he divorced Trujillo's daughter Flor. Do you think Ruby always knew when he was fired by Trujillo that Trujillo would be back? Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's very little written about his life during the the layoffs. Let's just call them the layoffs. Um, but, you know, you can imagine somebody who, uh, you know, his his monthly budget was like five or ten grand a month and the only way that he could get that was to have the influence of an ambassador and and access to Trujillo's checkbook. Ruby always charmed his way back into the good graces of Trujillo. But when those layoffs did happen, Ruby needed alternate funding sources and he needed them quick. And this is where Ruby's second source of money comes in. Let's call these odd jobs. Here's an example. In 1939, Ruby is in Germany. He has just divorced Flor de Oro. He is in need of some serious income. And he takes note of all the Jews desperately fleeing Europe. Here's Isabella Wall. The Dominican government, mainly Trujillo, had given an allowance for Jewish people to get out of Germany uh, and, and giving them uh, land for them to settle in the Dominican Republic. Ruby sees a financial opportunity here. 
He begins selling visas and passports to Jewish people seeking an escape, charging as much as $5,000 per person. You got to make a living. You got to go get some money. You just got to figure out where to get it. That's as simple as that. And he saw an opportunity where he can get some money and he got it. There's one version of this story that makes Ruby look like a Dominican Schindler's List, helping the Jewish people after being struck by their plight. Then there's the other version, where Ruby is making a quick buck off the fear and pain of a persecuted people. Why do you think he did this? Was it to help? Was it for money? Is it? Can it be for both? Well, we hope it was for both. We hope, but... Ruby spent money faster than he could make it. But, yeah, we hope. Ruby's last and maybe biggest source of money was... You all with me? Well, being a gigolo. <laughs> Ruby allegedly told his pal Frank Sinatra, yes, old blue eyes and Ruby, they were cool like that. He told Frank that he didn't have time for a real job. He said, and I quote, women are my full-time job. I had the world's greatest lover, you Who know. Who is the man that was the greatest lover? Well, everyone knows it, Porfirio Rubirosa. He didn't have to Porfigi This is Zsa Gabor, a very famous and wealthy actress Ruby dated for years. Zsa the one he flew across the globe to see for just one night. Ruby liked all kinds of women. Ooh, but he really loved the ones with big checkbooks. He was linked to some of the biggest, richest stars and socialites of the time. Like... Ooh, did you feel the breeze from the subway? Marilyn Monroe. Isn't it delicious? Eartha Kitt. How can Batgirl be the best anything when Catwoman is around? Eva Peron, Jane Mansfield, Veronica Lake, Dolores Del Rio, Rita Hayworth, Catherine Dunham, and Patricia Kennedy. And that is not to mention the rumored relationships with Amalia Rodriguez, Judy Garland, Joan Crawford, Ava Gardner, and who knows how many others there might be. <laughs> not all of these relationships were serious, but the few that were were very rewarding for Ruby, monetarily speaking. As we discussed, Ruby's first wife, Flor, gave him access to Trujillo's fortunes. After Flor, he married four more times. Danielle Dario, his second wife, was one of the most famous actors in France at the time. You know, when a girl gets engaged, her mother doesn't say, I'm happy because Alphonse is so handsome, but she says, I'm happy because Alphonse has such a wonderful job with the gas company. A couple years into the marriage, a journalist from Harper's Bazaar came to the hotel they were staying at to interview Danielle. The journalist's name was Doris Duke, and she wasn't just any journalist, y'all. She was the heiress to a tobacco fortune worth $1.5 billion in today's dollars. That Vanity Fair article I read back in college said that, after the interview, Doris sent Ruby a telegram that read, When you are finished with Danielle, call me, and I will come. Rumor has it, she didn't stop there. Nope. Doris Duke paid his wife, Danielle Darrier, to leave him so she could be with him. Legend has it that she paid Danielle $1 million to break it off with Ruby. Danielle accepted, and Doris became wife number three. Ruby and Doris divorced after just a year of marriage. He got not much from Doris Duke, and he got, I think, a plane. Not much? Well... First of all, that plane was a legit B-52 bomber Ruby used recreationally. Until he crashed it just a year later. Oh, let's see. He also got to keep his wedding gifts, which included a house in Paris, a stable of polo ponies, clothes, 
a ton of shoes, and a few sports cars. Plus, Ruby got alimony. $25,000 a year until he married again, which, Ruby being Ruby, didn't take long. 45-year-old Porfirio Ruberosa, on the right, playboy and diplomat from the Dominican Republic, enters the Hotel Pier in New York to marry Barbara Hutton. This is Ruberosa's fourth marriage and Miss Hutton's fifth. Enter wife number four, Barbara Hutton, an heiress to the Woolworth fortune worth almost a billion dollars in today's money. Their marriage in 1953 lasted only 75 days. That's Kardashian length, y'all. According to the New York Times, in those 75 days, Ruby netted a small fortune. In today's money, he made out with about $35 million of cash and property. This dude made almost half a million dollars per day from Barbara. Not too shabby. Also, you know how Ruby crashed the B-52 bomber he got from Doris Duke? Barbara bought him the same exact plane. Except this one was even fancier, y'all. Ruby kept using it the rest of his life. So with all this, with all the wives, the money, the famous affairs, with all the places that Ruby has been, from being Trujillo's right-hand man to being in Hitler's box at the German Olympics, to being in Fidel's Cuba in the streets of a liberated Paris, not to mention the high-end clubs and social events. Porfirio Rubirosa wasn't just in the room where it's happening. He's always finding his way into the center of that room. Could it all just be by chance? No. When you kind of look at Everybody that he knew and all of the things that he could do, he just sounded more and more like a secret agent. He flew his own airplanes. He had access to America's wealthiest fortunes. If he was solely a playboy and someone not to be taken seriously, why would you put him in all of these locations where you really needed to have you know, the sharpest tack there and somebody skilled in diplomacy and, and intelligence finding. So it's my belief that he was he was there doing the business of his country or doing the business of somebody else. You see, by getting close to fame, Ruby got close to the big money. And wherever there's a lot of money, there's power and power brokers. Feels very 007 to me. So is Ruby just a gigolo? Or are we not seeing the bigger picture? Is one based on any particular person or combination of persons? No, not really. This is author Ian Fleming being interviewed about his greatest triumph, the character of James Bond. He's a sort of fictional mixture of commandos and secret service agents that I met during the war, but of course entirely fictionalized. Okay, so Ian Fleming says Bond is an amalgamation of different people. Fleming was part of British intelligence during World War II, so there is no doubt that he definitely met some interesting spy types. But does that mean Bond is based only on white British dudes Fleming met and worked with? Or is it possible that Fleming was also inspired by a specific brown guy? Our brown guy. I'm a car aficionado. I love cars. And I was reading a car magazine on the way to New York for some business. Meet Daniel Velker, a lawyer in the Chicago area. 
And there was one sentence in an article about race car drivers, you know, amateur race car drivers, semi-professional drivers who had actually died while they were driving their personal vehicles. And I stumbled across Porfirio Rubirosa. Like me, Daniel had never heard of Ruby before this chance encounter with a magazine article. And like me, Daniel zeroed in on one particular thing. There was one sentence that said that some people believe he's the muse for James Bond. And that kind of shocked me because I'd never heard that before. And I remember seeing that sentence and going, I wonder if there's any truth to this. So I started doing some research. And the more I read, the more documents I looked at, the more I believed that that one sentence in that one article was absolutely correct. Daniel got obsessed right away. I get it. He spent six months digging into everything he could find about Ruby. He ended up writing this article about why he thought the fictional character of Bond was actually based on a real-life Dominican guy. In the course of writing the article, I also got an infogram. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's great. And my son actually helped me kind of put the dynamics together on it. But it really was helpful to show, you know, through those concentric circles and the overlap in the circles, it, it, it really makes a lot of sense. Daniel's infogram is titled, Will the Real James Bond Please Stand Up? And at the center of it all is basically a big Venn diagram that shows the links between Ian Fleming and Porfirio Rubirosa. All these people that he knew and rubbed shoulders with were all close to Ian Fleming or someone who was very close to Ian Fleming. They must have known each other, been acquainted with each other, and certainly been familiar with each other. Daniel's graphic was republished, reposted, and reshared in publications large and small across the internet. His argument rests on a few key points. For instance, Ian Fleming had to have known about Rubirosa. The timing just makes sense. Fleming's first Bond novel came out in 1953. This is the height of Ruby's heyday, right before he marries Barbara Hutton, wife numero cuatro. Plus, Ruby and Fleming, they are both big players in the Caribbean. Ian Fleming lived in Jamaica, uh, on his uh, state called GoldenEye, and Jamaica is just a few hundred miles from the Dominican Republic, where Porfirio spent a lot of his time and was in residence quite a bit. Throughout the 50s and 60s, flights and ships were readily accessible between Jamaica and the DR. Flights and ships that many of Fleming's buddies would catch back and forth. Ian Fleming was close with Errol Flynn and Noel Coward, who both lived in the North Shore of Jamaica. Errol Flynn and Ruperosa were known to have made trips together to Havana. Ruperosa dated some of the same women, married some of the same women that those gentlemen, you know, knew and, and frolicked with. You know, Ruperosa ran in the same circles as Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, uh, the Kennedys. We haven't found anything that definitively proves that Ruby and Ian Fleming met. But even still, Daniel thinks it would have been nearly impossible for Fleming to not have at least heard about Ruby. Ruba Rosa was kind of a favorite of the, of the Caribbean journalists at the time and was pretty notorious in his womanizing, uh, his potential connection to the underworld, so to speak. And some of Ruba Rosa's, you know, antics in the Caribbean was something that was written about by the journalists. And I'm sure that Ian Fleming was aware of that. It wasn't just the Caribbean press talking about Ruby. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, he was a favorite subject of gossip columns all around the world. He was Bieber before Bieber. Time magazine regularly updated readers of Ruby's whereabouts. And Ruby was BFFs with a famous gossip columnist who wrote under the name Charlie Knickerbocker. 
So, he was always just a phone call away from coverage. There were just a lot of connections. Once you see all the connections between Ruby and Fleming, it's hard to ignore. It just makes sense. If Bond is an amalgamation of people Fleming knew, it's almost impossible not to see Ruby's DNA in that mix. Ruberos, like Bond, was a notorious glutton for debauchery. He was somebody who liked to womanize and drink and didn't have time to eat. You know, he was driving, he was racing his cars through the streets and staying up late. In his infographic, Daniel makes a list of what they share. There's the womanizing. Mm, you like married women. That keeps things simple. <laughs> the impeccable fashion. Have you broken something? Only my tailor's heart. The jet setting. What kind of work do you do anyway? Oh, I uh, travel, a sort of uh, licensed troubleshooter. <laughs> they both love fast cars. James, is it really necessary to drive quite so fast? More often than you'd think. They both love to gamble. In poker, you never play your hand. You play the man across from you. In fact, Bond spends a lot of his time in casinos. And so did Ruby. He was a regular at the casinos of Monte Carlo. Both men are boxers and fanatical about exercising. And of course, Bond just has the same swagger that we know Ruby had. Swagger like that, I gotta say, seems like it's inspired by a brown guy. You know that swagger. Someone from the islands with a flavor and a rhythm that is distinct and unique. Ruby himself was aware of James Bond. In 1964, the first James Bond film is released in theaters, Goldfinger, starring Sean Connery as James Bond. A year later, Ruby and his friends tried to make a shot-by-shot remake of the film for fun. Taki played Oddjob. Ruby's fifth wife, Odile Rodin, played Pussy Galore. And Ruby... I'll give you one guess who Ruby played. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. The remake was a disaster. Ruby was a drunken mess, and the footage has been lost to history. But to me, it shows that Ruby was aware of his fictional doppelganger. Here's Daniel Velker again. When you read about Porfirio and, and you look back at the things he was doing over the course of his life, you know, racing cars and hobnobbing with the rich and the wealthy and, and in great political circles, he, he certainly fit the bill of what I thought you know, James Bond really was. When you, when you read the Bond novels, in the early novels... Bond was more of a um, rough, more of a murderous kind of an assassin, very cold-hearted. Whereas in, in some of the, in the later books, he became much softer, much more complex, and had all the attributes of a um, gentleman. And I think that resembles, in my mind, the growth in Ruberosa, from being a young man in the, in the military to becoming kind of this elite, wealthy individual. Fleming writes in his 1954 Bond book, Live and Let Die, quote, There are moments of great luxury in the life of a secret agent. There are assignments on which he is required to act the part of a very rich man. Occasions when he takes refuge in good living to efface the memory of danger and the shadow of death. Ruberosa was a, you know, a rare algorithm of charm, good looks, ruthlessness, and cruelty. And those are all the characteristics of Bond, especially Bond in the, in the early novels. Okay, so there's one more aspect of James Bond we haven't talked about yet. That ruthlessness and cruelty that Daniel's talking about. His license to kill. His double-O status. Killing makes James Bond mysterious, sexy, complicated. And of course, a hero. 
Because after all, he's doing it for queen and country, for the good of the people. But James Bond is fictional. It is easy to make him good. It sells. But what does a license to kill look like in real life? On April 28, 1935, a man named Sergio Ben Cosme, who often had expressed his opposition to the Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo, was shot to death in New York in an apartment he was sharing with Dr. Angel Morales, a leader of anti-Trujillo exiles in New York. Police later figured that Ben Cosme had been... This is from a newspaper article quoted in Ruby's FBI file. The guy who got murdered was named Sergio Ben Cosme. Back in the DR, he'd been a politician and outspoken opponent of Trujillo. So it was no surprise that when Ben Cosme turned up dead, shot to death in his apartment, people were pretty sure Trujillo was involved. At the time, Ruby wasn't a diplomat yet. He was just a member of Trujillo's presidential guard. But get this. Just a few days before Ben Cosme's murder, Ruby traveled to New York City. He was gone by the time the murder took place, and the guy suspected of committing the murder was Luis de la Fuente Rubirosa. Ruby's cousin. Among Dominicans, it is generally thought that Ruby Rosa came to New York expressly to make the arrangements with his cousins for the assassination. Basically, Ruby Rosa was assigned with, you know, making him disappear. He didn't do it himself. He didn't execute it himself. But he certainly hired the person to go do it. That's, that's the connection. The authorities in New York should call now Porfirio Rubirosa for questioning with regard to the assassination of Dr. Sergio Bencosme. The FBI eventually made plans to detain and question Ruby. But in 1936, the year after the murder, Trujillo conveniently appointed him an official diplomat, which gave Ruby the shield of a sweet little thing called diplomatic immunity. The FBI couldn't touch him. They could never prove it, or they could never retain him long enough to interrogate him. When Trujillo died in 1961, Ruby finally lost his diplomatic status. It was 25 years after the murder, but the Manhattan DA called Ruby in for questioning as soon as they could. They talked to him for three hours. At the end, Ruby told reporters, as far as I'm concerned, the matter is finished. More James Bond stuff to me. There's another part of Ruby's file that gives me even more James Bond vibes. Porfirio Rubirosa is an agent of the Dominican Military Intelligence Service in a very special category. The Servicio de Inteligencia. It's kind of like the DR's version of the CIA. And the FBI didn't think Ruby was just some paper pusher. Whenever Ruby Rosa arrives in the Dominican Republic, he is given the red carpet treatment and in less than two minutes is on his way from the airport to either SIM headquarters or the presidential palace. Historically, the SIM were known as Trujillo's henchmen, like the KGB in Russia or Gestapo in Germany, or, you know, the MI6. The SIM didn't just gather information, they took it. They were a secret police force who carried out Trujillo's orders by any means necessary. They used to patrol the streets in black Volkswagen Beetles. Ruby, what was your role in the SIM? He was very feared, Ruby, because he had spread a reputation that he was a killer. He was no more killer than I am. If Ruby was a killer, 
he definitely didn't tell his boy Taki about it. He was never a spy. And if he had been a spy, he would have told us. Or maybe he was and never told us. But no. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He, I never heard him say that James Bond was based on him. But why not? Why don't you can say it now? But I don't, I don't think so. Nevertheless, Taki says this reputation as a killer followed Ruby. And his involvement with the Ben Cosme murder was mentioned in news coverage for decades after the fact. If Ian Fleming was reading the news... He very well could have known about this case and its star. A real-life intelligence agent with a good-looking suit, mad charm, suave as can be, a pension for the nightlife, and a license to kill. And sure, when you see a story like this on the silver screen, the spy is a hero. The murder is justified, and the country that he serves is always on the right side of history. But in real life, it's never so cut and dry. Rubirosa answered directly to Trujillo, and while Trujillo was in charge, the DR was the site of some pretty brutal shit. People taught their children to roll their R's because of the fear that the Dominicans would come again one day. That's next time. Rubirosa is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. It's created by me, your boy, Christopher Rivas. I am also an executive producer. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. She's magical. Kevin Tidmarsh is our producer. Our story editor is John Delore, a genius. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Camille Stanley is the executive producer of Witness Docs. Readings of Ruby's memoir were beautifully performed by Victor Almanzar. Workhouse Media Inc. is also a contributing producer to this podcast, as are executive producers Amelia Baker, Mackenzie Monroe, and Ari Anderson. Original music for this podcast is composed and performed by my homie Wilson Torres, Jason Biamar, and Marcos Varela. Our theme song is composed by Allison Layton Brown. Get in touch, y'all. We want to know your questions, thoughts, and stories. We want to hear from you. So send them all to rubirosa at stitcher.com. And do us a favor, subscribe to the show, write reviews, tell your friends. We love the help. We appreciate you. Peace, y'all.